don't try and manage time, try and manage attention. There's an awful lot of people who have just spent 20, 30, 40 years like on the hamster wheel. Often what happens is people make a to-do list and then like you said before, like the thing that you don't want to do is on the bottom and then there's something in the middle that you don't quite understand and carry it forward day after day after day. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast. I have suffered over the years not being as productive as I could be. I sometimes have done what many of us have done. I've spent time scrolling or I've sat uh, looking at my computer, going through emails and just not being as productive as I can. And I've had a few guests on the show and we had uh, Nir El, who was uh, the author of a book called Indistractable who taught me how to schedule rather than run a to-do list. Well, today's guest is a productivity ninja and he wrote a book about the exact subject and i want to get him on the show so he can help me and he can help you be more productive graham alcott is an entrepreneur author speaker and podcaster he's the author of four books including the global bestseller how to be a productivity ninja and he's host of the beyond busy podcast which explores the issues of productivity work-life balance and how people define happiness in their lives Nowadays, when many people have been switched partly or entirely to remote work, Graham shares his lessons on how to organize your workday, set clear productivity goals, and find tools that foster productivity. Why is it important? Because just going to work and showing up at work isn't enough. Owning a business, kind of running a business, isn't enough. We have to work out how we can be as productive in the hours that we spend at work. Great examples of that are going to the four-day week experiment that's taken place and been adopted or the six-hour workday in different countries, and they are yielding phenomenal results. Let's get stuck in to the productive Spencer Lodge podcast. Cue the music. Thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Vault Hill is the world's first human-centric metaverse that's opened its doors for brands and entities to launch their presence in the metaverse in only 48 hours. This is the fastest activation ever and the first time ever any metaverse has offered this. Upon this activation process, brands will receive free virtual land in Vault Hill City and can give life to their metaverse presence by buying buildings in the Vault Hill marketplace and deploy it on their dedicated VLAND. Then brands can customize their land using unbounded creativity. They can display their own NFTs or upload different media, logos, or digital creations to start to capitalize from their digital assets. Go check out vaulthill.io. Well, Graham, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. God, man, I'd like to be a ninja of types, but a productivity ninja, that's a... That's, that's a bit of an unusual one. And it always scares me when I think about productivity because I regard myself as unproductive often and <laughs> mental health issues in the past meant that I was unproductive as well. But then, then I get into this kind of state where I'm like super aligned with mission and purpose and objectives and whatnot. And, and I become like this, this machine that's as effective as possibly can be. I'm sure you've seen lots of that in the past with various people that you've worked with. But what on earth is a productivity ninja? And can you in the next 60 minutes teach me to be one along with other things? Uh, yes, I can, I can certainly, uh, we can certainly go into some of that. So psychologists, by the way, refer to that state as flow. So when you're 
in the zone and in the moment and you're really focused on this one thing and you're really enthralled by it and in those moments the whole rest of your world falls away so you're not looking at email or thinking about what you're going to do that evening you're just like interacting in the moment with that thing um so that's a really important state and um the the interesting thing about that state is often what gets you into that state is deadlines right and deadlines are stressful so really most of the work i do is about helping people to find that state. I call that Zen-like calm, going down the productivity ninja theme, but helping to find that state as often as possible and in as healthy a way as possible where you don't need stress to get there. So that's really um, that's really most of the work that I do is, is about that very thing. Now you, you wrote this book, I would think it's, what is it, eight years ago, maybe nine years ago now that you wrote the book and you've been you've been kind of attached to it in many ways over the years. It's kind of been your moniker. It's been your, your calling card and everything else has, has your learnings from all of those years ago evolved and changed over the course of the last eight years due to the fact that people behave differently in the workplace and we had COVID and everything else to take into consideration. Yeah. So I would say to that. So interestingly, I did that book came out in 2014 and then, I did a five-year anniversary edition of it in 2019. And I was asked by the publisher, hey, can you just rewrite this whole book? And <laughs> what I found was there are some ways that some of the habits and the way they're applied changes when the technology changes. But really the habits themselves, I don't think really need to change at all. So, you know, as we go through, you know, the last sort of 10, 15 years, and then we look ahead to the next five, 10, 15 years, there's obviously a massive shift towards more hybrid working, there's shifts in technology, but the fundamentals around how we deal with stress, how we manage all the 50 things that are buzzing around in our head, uh, you know, how we convert all of that stuff, all, all those different thoughts and ideas into, here's the thing I need to be working on, here's where I start, here's, here's where I need to get to. I don't think that, you know, fundamentally changes at all. So the good news is when you, when you, when you learn these habits, when you start to change the way that you work, you get a much... Um, you know, more stress-free um, way of working. And you actually, at the end of the day, you feel like you've achieved a lot every day without the need for all that stress. So that's the bit that doesn't change. And it's, you know, there's actually quite a small number of habits that you need to adopt and think about to, to really make that happen. Okay, so we'll go into those in a second. How does, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are gurus that think that uh, that they know lots of stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of the coaching world and I'm really not a fan of it. I'm a fan of the mentoring world, people that have yeah. walked in the shoes before me that have experienced stuff that, that can teach me from the experience rather than teach me from the manual. And so when it comes to you and being an expert in this area, how, how did you become the person that people go to to learn about this kind of stuff? What, what was it? What was your experience? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So if you think about the early part of my career, it's like it's a, it's a massive success and a massive failure all at the same time. So um, I became um, chief executive of a, a charity here in the UK, um, and it was a national charity around promoting um, volunteering. So I was literally like the second week of my job, uh, the phone goes on. It was back when you had phones on your desks, right? And the phone rang on my desk and uh, it said, is that Graham? And I was like, yep, yeah. it's the Department of Education. The minister wants to see you. And this is like week two of my job and I'm 25 going on 26. And, um, you know, I, I was in this very, um, you know, sort of influential position of leadership at an age, which to be honest is, you know, just a really young age for me to have got that role, I did very well to get it. 
I really enjoyed it. I did that for three years. Um, and then I moved on to do, uh, I was doing kind of other consultancy in with other charities um, around the UK. And when I was doing that consultancy, I was freelance. So I no longer had a team. So the old job, there was, you know, sort of 15 people who were the, the staff team, a whole bunch of volunteers. Suddenly I'm sat, you know, in my spare room at home as a freelance consultant on my own. And I had all these ideas and I started writing them down. And then I looked around me for the team that would get everything done. And I was like, oh, I'm on my own. I don't know how to do this. And I realized I had this massive deficit within me, which is because I got into leadership roles really early, I wasn't actually good at being a doer, being a completer finisher, actually getting stuff done. So I had to kind of learn productivity the hard way. And so I kind of learned it flailing around after I'd had some career success, but also thinking I'm going to need this, this set of skills if I'm going to do anything else. And to be honest, I had no um, intentions of becoming a coach. I had no intentions of being the person that wrote the manual on productivity, but it just became the thing that whenever I talked to people and said, hey, I've just started doing this new thing where my inbox is at zero now and people would just go, what? How do I how do I do that? <laughs> and so it just became the, this thing that I kind of fell into, really. And um, you know, it's been a, a a pretty interesting sort of ten years since in teaching it to you know some of the most interesting companies in the world, and uh, it, it's taken me some very to, to some really interesting places. Um, but yeah, it was it was never the it was never the career path that I thought I was going to be on. When you th- when you think about the the challenges that people face, like real challenges people face, is as a business owner, if I want to employ people, there's you know different people. Simon Sinek will tell me one thing. Jordan Peterson will tell me another thing about the kind of people that I need to employ. Um, you know, some people say never, never, ever look at someone's CV. What what can it tell you that's really valuable? It's uh, also professional interviewers will tell you that most people will decide within thirty seconds of whether they like someone, and they're going to then spend the next hour looking for more things they like about them or dislike them and find as many things as they can dislike about them in that hour too so you get fed a lot of different information as to to how you can be effective with people in your business but all of the years that I've had success in business I've it's it's almost been like a lead by example type of behavior when people see me structured disciplined organized and and uh, efficient and effective they find it much easier to follow suit if you just leave people to their own devices they'll they'll often get in their own way almost with their product productivity and um a good example of that with uh, indistractable the author near il which we both know when he was on the show he's like spence you we've got to get away from everyone writing to-do lists it's a real problem to-do lists really are and they're they're a problem because of the following he said if you've got 10 things you need to do you're never going to write the thing at the top of the list that you'd want to do the least he said that's going to go at the bottom of the list and you'll, you'll never you'll never get to it because by the time you've got through the first seven things every Everything's slowly getting worse through the day anyway, because you're having to do the next thing, which is less liked than the thing before. He said, so what you have to do, he said, work out how long each of those tasks will take and schedule it and put everything into your diary. And at 9.15, you're doing this. And at 12.30, you're doing that, etc. And so it goes in. And when he said that to me, I was like, that's a really, a much smarter way for my brain to process how to get stuff done. Now, and I was very grateful for the fact that I'm able to, just you know it's learning tricks or learning strategies yeah. and techniques which can work but 
then I come from a world, you know, I'm 52 years old. So I come from a world where this whole working four days a week or working six hours a day really messes with my head because I've always worked long hours. I've loved to work long hours. And so maybe that's one of my, one of my failings, but why, why does it mess with your head to work a four day week? I've worked one for 10 years, by the way. So I'm curious to know. Maybe there's not enough going on in my life outside of work. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting you ask that question. It's like, because the first, my first question would be, what would you do? Um, no, I tell you something happened to me. Nobody knows this. You'll be the first person I ever tell this to. Okay. How old are you? I'm uh, about to turn 44. Okay, so you're, you're eight so years old. It, it, it felt dishonest to say I was 43, even though that's why. <laughs> okay, so you're eight or nine years younger than me. When I was at school as a kid, we had registration at school and registration. You would either say um, home, um, school dinners or pack lunch. That was the thing you would say at registration. So home and you yeah. go home for lunch, school dinners, obviously school dinners and pack, pack lunch. You had a pack lunch. My mum and dad got divorced when I was young. Dad went bankrupt and my mum didn't have anything as she was bringing us up. And so I had free school dinners. And so we had, we you know, the, the deal with that. There you go. There's my tough backstory as we spoke about earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my, my free school dinners, one day, my mum, when the 20 pence piece got introduced, my mum started collecting 20 pence pieces. Now, this was when 20 pence would buy you a big, big bag of sweets and a big donut. Okay. And so I nicked, I stole three of those 20 pence pieces and took them to school. And in registration, I said, instead of usually school dinners, which I'd had all of my life, I went home. And the teacher looked up. She's at home, Spencer Lodge. And I was like, yeah, home today. My mum's making lunch at home. Well, what I did is I left the school and I went to the local corner shop. I got the bag of sweets, went to the baker's, got the donut. Okay, and I went to the park and I sat and ate them. And I came back. No, one, I've never told this story. I can't believe I haven't told this story. And I came back uh, uh, probably halfway through lunch. They're like, I was back a bit early. <laughs> There's no one at the park to play with. I was on my own. It was like, what do you do? I came back into school at lunchtime and I had terrible guilt for what I'd done. Okay. Now I was able to bury that guilt until a few days later when my mum found out that I stole the 60 pence, the three twenty pence pieces. And I was, you know, I went through all kinds of punishment for that being a kid and doing that. Mm. So I think there's the part of that story plays a part in how I think about things relating to that. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, well, it does. And um it yeah, I I I really resonate with that actually because um yeah, I also had, I also sort of came from a background. I was actually also a free school meals kid and, and all of that sort of stuff too. And I think um, it's really interesting. Like, so my podcast is called Beyond Busy. And, you know, I talk to people about, uh, you know, their hangups about being busy or what does work mean to them? And, you know, I call it the bigger questions of work and life. And I'm really fascinated about identity and the way people uh, see themselves and see their work and see their work as an expression of them and and all of that stuff and you know it sounds to me without trying to be your therapist or anything but like <laughs> sat, it, you know what I'm hearing it sounds like what you're saying is that like you know you had this real wish at a really young age to uh, you know at, at that stage it was like I want to you know I want to seem like I have enough to be able to uh, not be on the free school meals and like I totally get that having been there, but also like that 
I think often what happens is that stuff from childhood gets programmed into us. And then that's how we then, you know, sort of continue our adult life. And it's amazing, you know, talking to, you know, as you do on your podcast, like I've talked to politicians, Olympic gold medalists, you know, um, incredible authors, uh, so many CEOs, you know, so many people who've achieved a lot. And yet when you really start to, you know, drill into and question like why people do what they do or what where their motivation comes from, I think it can be incredibly primitive and it can be incredibly unself-aware, if that's the right word. Unself-aware, is that a word? But I, I just think there's a lot, there's an awful lot of people who have just spent 20, 30, 40 years like on the hamster wheel trying to prove something because early on, part of their makeup was, I need to prove something. And you don't ever really get to the stage where you work out what it is you need to prove, but you're just trapped on that that thought pattern that's continuing. Mm. Um, so yeah, that really resonates. And I think, um, yeah, I had a similar experience in 2017, actually. I took the whole of 2017. And I said, I've built my business. I've got a managing director who's running it. I've done, you know, seven seven years of my business. I was like, seven year itch. I just want to have a year of, um, you know, just taking a year out. And uh, so I took this sabbatical for a year and I felt guilty every day for about four months. And everyone around me is going, oh, well done you. This is amazing. Like you're taking time for you. You know, you work really hard. Like this is the time to really enjoy yourself. And it was, I was miserable, utterly miserable. And also I was doing things like I was, uh, I, I ditched my work to-do list because I wasn't working that year and I, I wasn't looking at email, but I basically replaced it with a house to-do list. So suddenly I was like, I'm going to do up this thing in the house and do that. And, you know, and so I basically needed some kind of way to, to sort of stay busy. And it, it probably took me six months actually to really get to the other side of that malaise and misery and get to a place where it was like you know and it sounds awful doesn't it but I'm so aware that like what I just said is I gave myself a year off still getting paid and I was miserable like how awful that sounds just on the face value of it but I think you know just in terms of the privilege of it but I think when you get beyond that it's like I think so many of us have this really um sort of deep-seated need to be busy or to prove something or you know, to drive in a way that you don't really, un we don't really understand it within ourselves and it's just there. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I relate. <laughs> and then, then on the back of that, I mean, everybody knows that knows me on this podcast knows that, that, I, that I had a year where I was paid not to go to work. So I had a, in 2012, yeah. I was, I was on gardening leave basically for 12 right. months. Yeah. Depression, manic depression, um, suicide, almost planned it done all my finances organized it ready to go because it was such an empty wow. part of my life where I, I wasn't allowed to work so all of a sudden there was no meaning there was no mission there was no purpose and all it did is it took me on a, and, and again wanting to take time to catch up with people I hadn't had the time to catch up with well that lasted four weeks then what do I do and so yeah. I was literally in this void where everyone was getting up and going to work every day but I wasn't you know I would be the guy that was trying to fill my day with going to the supermarket you know go and do stuff just do something but also your mindset or my mindset was so challenged by that that there was no way I was in the space to learn anything you know a lot of people say take three months and go and learn a new language or something hmm. 
it was misery. So yeah, I think yeah. that when you come back to the point we made earlier, it's like the, you know, the, the four day week or the six hours a day, it's like, it, we like, and you know, I've never experienced it, but will I feel that I've done a full day's work or a hard day's work if I take Friday off, you know, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. It's like, that's a recipe for, yeah. you know, getting fat and getting drunk. That is to me, if you're going to take that <laughs> much time. <laughs> well, I'm working on both of those things, but I think, um, I, I do think, uh, so, I, so I've worked a four day week. My company was one of the first in, in the UK, probably the first in the world actually to do a permanent four day week. So we've been doing it for about nine years it's become very, you know, big, there's big trials happening in the UK right now about mm. a lot of companies trying it out. And it's become something that's very mainstream. But when we started doing it, I mean, I was on Twitter, and there was only one other company that we could find that had tried it. And um, the guy sent me a, a direct message on Twitter saying, uh, the problem with this, Graham, is that if you let the genie out of the bottle, you can't go back. So be very careful and basically told me not to do it. Um, I did it anyway. Um, but I think it's made our company more productive rather than less. So how, not... how, so here's the thing. So we're not productive in spite of our four day week. We're productive because of our four day week. And what I mean by that is I think it's a few different tricks of the mind. When you have Monday to Friday, you've got five days. And so if you have half a Monday of just kind of, sitting around, you're staring out the window, you're not quite getting, you know, round stuff. You've still got like four fifths of your, of your week left. Just by changing that to four, if I mess around with my Monday, I'm a quarter of my week gone. And that difference is so massive in your brain. So I think it really focuses it. Um, RMD at, at Think Productive, Elena Kerrigan, um, she um, has this like little phrase where it's like, um, work hard and go home early. You know, and so her thing is like, you know, basically while you're at work and she is the absolute embodiment of this, by the way, she's like serious, heads down, focused, like really like in flow, that flow that we talked about earlier. She knows what she needs to achieve. She's got clarity and definition around everything she does. But then like her aim is to, you know, if she's supposed to clock off at five, it's like five to five, I'm done, you know, and I'm and I'm ready to go. And so like, I think, the four day week really enhances that. And so it really, it focuses your mind, but also on the other side of it, what have you done? You've had three days of, of relaxation. Most of the time, one of those days of everybody's weekends is taken up with chores. Let's face it. It's mm -hmm. doing the laundry, getting the car sorted out, like all those little things that fill our lives. If you've got a day every week, let's say it's Friday where you can do that. You can actually have two days where you're actually relaxed mm -hmm. and then come back on the Monday. So I'm a massive advocate for it. Um, I have to say, I kind of, we, we've done it for a long time. Uh, my company uh, had a massive sort of mission and battle through uh, COVID where obviously like most of Think Productive's work is face-to-face -face workshops. We were shifting everything to online. And also at the same time, lots of our clients were saying, hey, we're moving to working from home. We have no, no idea how, how to do this and you guys probably can help. So we would devise, we'd devise three new workshops in three weeks. Usually they take us about nine months. Um, to do one you know so we were like absolutely flat out and so in that period i lost the four-day week and went back to five days probably about a year and a half and it's taken me you know back to your story of the the 20 pence pieces like it's taken me probably till now to fully sort of reprogram myself again back into four-day week um but yeah my uh, my partner also 
um, does uh, a four day week. So basically Fridays, you know, we go for walks, we, we sort of catch up and it's our, it's our sort of quality time together with a sort of busy household with two kids and two cats in it. It kind of needs that time. And, um, you know, we, we just kind of make sure that that's the time that it's, it's, you know, just the two of us and, and that's our thing. So, um, I'm a massive advocate for it. And I think, um, we all probably have to reprogram a lot of the ways that we think about work. I think the other thing that's coming just to sort of, um, add another sort of curveball into the conversation is when you then start to think about, um, automation and AI, you start to think about the the fact that humans like to be useful we like to feel like we're being helpful um you know it's interesting when you talk to anybody about self-driving cars they all think oh well i would be better than a car you know i i would and i think a lot of that instinct comes from we have a sense of identity about we know how to drive so therefore it must be better but actually like a lot of this i think is about um you know it's about having an abundance mentality about it and saying well, actually, if, if the car can do that better than me, that frees me up. I can read some books instead of driving. Like there's, there's so many things that we can do. And I think that stuff is actually going to really, it's going to wreck the knowledge work economy um, because we all like to feel like we're being useful. And then suddenly when, you know, machines can take over so many of the processes of our of our work, even down to creative processes, I think we really have to get to a point where we don't define ourselves by what we do. And we have to start thinking about defining ourselves by how we express ourselves and and a whole bunch of other stuff. That's really interesting you say that. So as you're saying it, I'm thinking to myself about how people get paid. Yeah. And a lot of people get paid a salary. They're on 50 grand a year. Let's say that, you know, there's my 50 grand a year and they then have to pay their income tax and everything else gets paid off and they're left with an amount of money each month to live on. But that salary, people think they're worth that salary. That's why they agree to it. Do they bring in excess of £50,000 to the table in terms of benefit to that business every year? Um, It's questionable based around productivity. But if you actually look at somebody that only gets paid for what he delivers... And maybe you'd have some information on this. You know, so for me, I've never had a salary in my life. Oh, yeah, I had a temping job at Stansted Airport when I was a kid putting food and plates, but that, that's about a week. So I've, I've always been on essentially commission only. I've never taken salaries out of any of my businesses. I've taken dividends, which are part of profits, but I've never, yeah. ever, ever um, taken any money from the business. So to me, giving me a sal- salary strangles me. Because you're basically mm. telling me that's all I'm going to get as a reward for the work that I do, as opposed to, well, if you work twice as hard as the guy sat next to you, chum, you can earn twice as much money as him. If you deliver more, you'll get more. And so yeah. for me, it's very normal to then be motivated by that. I mean, as long as you're in the right environment that's you know competitive and positive or whatever it is that you need. But for me, it was competitive. And, you know, there were some nemesis out there that I had to go for and stuff like that it always made me work harder. And again, my income was con- was determined purely by the effort and out with the effort I put in and the outcome of that effort that it provided. Do, do you think, and again, most small business owners that then build a business, often that's the case as well. They don't often pay themselves a salary at the beginning, do they? You know, they'll find that they're not in the position to do so. Do you think that that makes a difference to people's productivity or can? I'm sure it can but I don't think most people work for money. Okay. Um, I think, 
so you look at people who have well either people who've inherited a lot of money or people who've made a lot of money um they're still working a lot of them in some form or another Sit, sitting here right now i could i could very easily have a, a few years where i where i don't work um and i'm choosing not to do that and i think that's true of everybody i think there's i think obviously of course money comes into the um the conversation of course you know everybody has to pay their bills but i don't think so there's plenty of studies around this so there's a there's a study that was in um i think it was in dan pink's um book and it was basically saying the worst thing you can do is in drive and he was saying the worst thing you can do to motivate somebody is to give them a pay rise people are not motivated by it if you look at all the studies um, people are way more motivated by being um, recognized and rewarded, you know, um, amongst their peers and, and everybody seeing that they're doing a good job. Um, people are really motivated by the idea of a, a job title rise rather than a pay rise. So giving them, a you know, more of a status in, in the company or, you know, just recognizing that they're on a more senior level and so on. Um, and there was another really interesting study, which I think about a lot, and I've talked to a lot of people about on on Beyond Busy, which is um, the one where they uh, track income and then they look at happiness based on income. And you would think that the more money you make, that it goes up in a straight line like this, right? Like more money, more happiness, more money, more happiness. And what they find is, uh, yes, at the beginning it goes like that. So until you have a roof over your head and you feel some sense of security, uh, and that's a whole other fascinating thing, by the way, when we get into money and security, and we probably have some fairly similar childhood experiences on that but until you get to a level of security then it's going up like that and then it basically levels off um, so the guy who runs the glastonbury festival in the uk uh, michael Evis, has basically for 20 or 30 years paid himself the exact amount of money that that study tells you and adjust it for inflation so he pays himself from the entire glastonbury festival biggest music festival in the world um, about fifty-five thousand pounds a year i think it is right now and the reason he says um, for that is that that's how much he needs to be incrementally happier. And there's no point in him taking, so all the rest of the money all goes to charities and various other things. And, um, you know, he, I think that's a really healthy way to look at money and happiness because back to your thing about productivity, you know, um, maybe what uh, you're suggesting there is when you're commission only, then you're just way more motivated because you get all the rewards of it. So you want to keep going, but it's like the, but the rewards are for what, you know, what's the thing that you really, what you chase oh, yeah, at the end it, of it, you know, there's, a, there's um, an answer to that because, you know, I was offered the opportunity once. Okay. You earn a hundred thousand pounds. Okay. And you come first or you can earn 200,000 pounds and you come second. <laughs> what, what what would you take and, and come first in what so like in, so a, in, in, in a sales competition let's call it that, obviously in a, right okay yeah okay, so you're mm. over the course of a year you're yeah, competing with a, a bunch one. of other people and for me it was never the, and i said i will i'll, I'll come first on a hundred thousand please said, yeah but you've just yeah. you could have 200 and come second i'm like but winning to me matters and mm. what comes with winning is recognition acknowledgement yeah. from people appreciation and some form of um respect and regard that you're held in because you were able to achieve what other people hadn't achieved and so for me it's always been about winning i've got to yeah. win i have to win and money and and yeah and of course so i'm not saying no one works for money in the sense that money will money will be a measure of your winning right so if, if you get mm -hmm. a big commission check or someone asks you what your salary is and you can say a number that you feel like you're winning like 
money can be a measure of winning don't get me wrong but like none of the things you listed there are actually about money they're about you know status and a feeling of achievement and feeling like you're useful and you know um i think i just think those things are so underrated and undervalued in the way we we think about um le- leadership and work for other people as well as the way we think about leadership and work but for then, this is really interesting though because now we're talking about how you understand your employees drivers because each individual person is going to have drivers that are relevant and significant to them so to make those employees even your own drivers for goodness sake but how do you make those employees more productive you say well let's take money off the table here because it's not a driver so what are the things and there's there's a whole scale of different things so what, what what would be the process so i've got I don't know, let's say 80 or 90 employees here in the office in Dubai, what would be the process that I would have to go through to understand everybody's buttons? Yeah. Um, wow, that's a really good question. I I don't think I have a process so much as um, a go for lunch with people, right? <laughs> so like, but seriously, because I think... Um, so we have a thing in um, in Think Productive, which is every month, um, everybody goes for a coffee with their line manager. Um, and we do have a little checklist in there. But the idea is that it's not a space to talk about work. So it's more a space to talk about your mental health, how you're doing, your resilience levels, what's going on outside of work. Like it's all that sort of stuff. And I think it's in those, it's in the moments of space where you don't have structure that really like you start to build you know connection and 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 sort of understand each other's humanity in the way that you work so i would say like like that's the only thing i can say i it's the only way i know how to do it really is that um you know i'm actually weirdly quite introverted so i don't like um big groups and big crowds i don't like doing big um you know uh, sort of away days where everybody's you know drawing stuff and putting it on the walls and you know i like to just be talking to someone one-on-one and really sort of understanding um who they are so like that's how i do it um and i'm sure there are a whole bunch of you know very clever uh sort of personality profile tools which will help um but i yeah for me it's like you've got to make space to understand people as people um so i'm currently writing this book which is going to be called kind and the subtitle is why caring leaders triumph in a competitive world. And basically the whole premise of the book is to say that um, kindness is a, is a really important skill to teach people because it unlocks being able to understand the humanity of someone through that, you get empathy through that, you get trust. And once you have trust, trust greases the wheels of every single bit of productivity, right? So if you think about when you buy something from a brand name that you like, um do you evaluate whether that thing is well made or whether it's you know got frayed edges or whatever because it's that brand and you trust them and so like it trust removes due diligence and you only i think get trust by um you know really understanding people um so yeah that's like i think that's the the most important thing and also by the way like those motivations change right like i think my motivations are are really different now to what they were when i was describing that kid at 26 that um wanted to be the ceo of a charity and then eventually become the ceo of oxfam or amnesty international or something you know that was like 
that was my dream when I was at that age. And it was a lot of that, I think, was about trying to prove something and wanting to be, um, you know, wanting to be uh, kind of a recognized name in that sector. Um, and I just don't think I have that same uh, drive towards that now. Like, I think it, I think I've sort of gained a bit of, um, like, I was probably a lot more insecure at that age. Um, and I've sort of gained a bit of that security. And now it's much more about just like doing the work that I want to do and, and, you know, um, helping people along the way. That's kind of much more um, kind of how I see it these days. Okay. There's obviously many people listening to this and watching this right now that are saying, yeah, but um, uh, hold on a minute here. I've got a company. I've got 50 staff. That sounds quite overwhelming in reality. Um, that would clearly mean st the structure of the business um, would need to, if you were going to lean into that would need to be different. And so the, I've heard, what, do you mean you, taking them all to lunch? Well, yeah, you can't take everyone to lunch. There's not enough hours in the day because you'd be really fat then. Cause you'd have lots of lunch, but if yeah, you, yeah. If, but, that's, you, but that's the thing is that you, so your job isn't to be, is to take everybody to lunch. Your job is to take your, you know, your five senior leaders to lunch and their job is to take their five, yep. you know? Um, yeah, okay. So that's, I, that, that, that's what I was going to ask. How many direct reports yeah. do you think someone should have? Um, in a leadership oh, right, role? Okay. Um, well, I don't think you should be making a decision about how many direct reports based on um, whether you've got time to take them to lunch. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> uh, but I think, from, you know, I mean, if I think about, um, I mean, I, I just have, <laughs> I just have one right now, which is like um, my MD at, at Think Productive. Um, but someone I used to work with, um, I always found his life really fascinating. So he was... Um, he was a recruitment, uh, like basically he, he, he was the owner of a, of a big recruitment business in London. And probably once a year, um, he, we would, I would, so I, I really liked him and what he did. So if, if I knew people that were looking for jobs and stuff, then I would always send them his way. And so we, we kept in touch and he was a great networker. Um, he was really helpful to me over sort of different po points of my career. But basically, my entire interaction with, with him was we'd email back and forth about different things. And then he'd be like, it's a while since we've had lunch. Let's go and have lunch. So it would be a day where I'd be in London. And it would always be somewhere fancy in Soho or, you know, just somewhere in central London. Um, and I realized that he was doing this at least once a day um, and most times twice a day. So he'd have breakfast. He'd have a breakfast one and he'd have a lunch or he'd have a lunch in an evening or whatever. Um, but literally every day of the year. And he had five or six restaurants where whenever he walked in they'd be like oh yeah obviously we'll get your table and stuff you know he was known by these places but i found it like a really inspiring and fascinating sort of way of working because he always managed to it was always it never felt like work and yet there was always something that happened at the end of it in terms of follow-up where you know one of us whether it was him or me um, you know, something good happened where one of us helps the other one. And like, I, I often think about that. He's retired now, but I often think he must have had several hundred people that he was doing that same method with. And when, when you really think about it, obviously it's his money. He's got a massive, you know, he's got a massive expense account in his business, but actually that's, that's his marketing, isn't it? Like that's his whole marketing. That's his whole sales team is like, is him eating. 
and having a lovely time and meeting interesting people. And it just really struck me how, you know, he it's like the embodiment of the phrase people make the world go round. And it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think about him a lot. Yeah. What happened in your childhood? Tell me about your childhood that made you, <laughs> you who you are today. What happened in your childhood? So now you, you turn the tables on the therapy thing. Um, yeah, so there's probably like three things that are, that are probably most um, pertinent to say. Um, so one of them was, was money, right? So um, I have a very uh, sort of insecure relationship with money due to childhood and basically my parents not having very much. I have this one memory, which, you know, like when you have memories where you over time can't remember, you can't work out whether they're an actual memory or whether it's sort of like a, a soap opera scene that you've created in your head to describe a thing. So basically what happened was um, my dad lost his job and then my mum told me about that. And I'd seen on some TV show or on a, or on another soap opera or something, I'd seen that if you lose your job, you can lose your house. And I just, I was old enough to know that that was a thing, but not much older. So I was probably, you know, eight or eight or nine or something. And I remember saying to my mum when she said, your dad's lost his job, I was like, are we going to lose the house? And she said no, but she said no in a way that I didn't believe her. I was like, oh, she's really panicked in this conversation. And that's how I remember it. I don't know if that was actually what happened or whether I've, you know, embellished that memory since. Um, so that was a big thing. So money, I think, has always been a sort of insecure um, relationship for me. And I've got a couple of close friends, actually, who do a lot of coaching around money, which has been really helpful, which, yeah, I'll happily talk about the money thing in a minute and, and some of that stuff, because I think it's really fascinating. Um, second one is slightly different. So my parents uh, growing up um, were born again Christians. So I went to church every Sunday uh, from the age of zero to the age of about 10, maybe 10 or 11. Um, and then at quite a young age, started to sort of um, question it and rebel against it. And I think it's like that did two things. One, it taught me morality. So um, Jesus was my morality teacher and he's a great teacher for that. Um, but it also taught me critical thinking. So it taught me to reject everything that's being told to me as truth. And I think I've always been, that's always been a strength of mine at work is critical thinking and kind of putting things together in different ways. And, you know, that's, that's kind of, I, I guess, a lot of what I do when I'm writing books and stuff is kind of taking bits and pieces and rearranging it and kind of going, well, is it this or is it this? So I think that's that was quite a big influence. Um, and I'm definitely... I would describe myself as agnostic these days, I suppose. Um, and uh, my sister actually was a Christian pop star for a while, which is quite a funny thing. She's <laughs> she's now a, a very avowed atheist. Um, and then and then the third thing was like I kind of I kind of had a tough couple of years at school where I was just not really getting on with organised study when I was about fifteen, sixteen, and I rebelled. So I did a lot of truanting from school and became like the singer in an indie band and the promoter of local nightclub nights and the editor of a local fanzine a music fanzine and i just sort of took on all the stuff um outside of school that was not schoolwork and 
sort of got just enough GCSEs and A-levels to get by and get into a good university and stuff. But like I was really not trying very hard. Um, so maybe that idea of productivity being about um, finding the laziest way to do things, maybe that started mm. at a young age. But I do think um, those experiences of learning how to make stuff happen from scratch and learning how to do um you know like motivate other people to be involved in the music fanzine or to book gigs with me or whatever like that stuff started for me really young because you know i was just being entrepreneurial around all that stuff um but yeah so i think um those are probably like the main experiences and i, I don't think i've ever really summarized it in that way before but i think um do your do your mum yeah. did your mum and dad support you when you were going through that whole indie band scene or were they still very against that kind of stuff um they weren't against me being in bands they were against me not being at school um and there was a difference <laughs> right so a lot yeah so a lot of that stuff happened sort of in the evenings I could have been doing both and I was choosing to um to not be at school um so they well, hold yeah, on let's no, just give this not. a bit of perspective here yeah my my extent of truancy was the story I told you when I was seven yeah. years old. Yeah, but let's just make a comparison here. So at secondary <laughs> school, <laughs> secondary school, yeah. how often how often were you truant? Um, well, it was more that like there were certain lessons that I didn't like. So I so let's say if there was like chemistry in the morning, I didn't like it. I would just go mm -hmm. in at eleven, or I'd go in in the afternoon. Um, and then I, you know, I'd take some days off, but like, it wasn't like, I wasn't away for weeks at a time. Um, but there were probably, it's probably two or three years where it would be quite rare that I was there all week. Like, and, and I kind of got away with it a bit because what happened was, um, uh, you know, like most kids at school, you have to go to, you go to the registration in your form room before you go mm -hmm. to your first lesson right mm -hmm. so you, they take the register and all that and then you have assembly and then you go to your first lesson so i would let them do all that and they'd do assembly and i'd be like well why is why am i going to assembly i'll just turn up at like half nine and just go to the first lesson so that i that was what i was doing anyway so i was all already at a point where my teacher was um i wouldn't say happy but my teacher was resigned to the fact that i wasn't in the register anyway so then I could just sort of come and go as I please. So I basically like, you know, that whole thing where then you go to university and it's like you're doing a few hours here and a few hours there. Well, I've been doing that for years anyway. Um, just turning <laughs> up. Where, yeah, but, but not, you know, um, my, my girls, no, my no one girls. was happy about it, but I would just be like, yeah, you know, typical Graham again sort of thing. And people just mm. sort of for a long time, I don't think I'd get away with it now, actually. I think the schools are a bit more um, strict on that stuff now. But like, <laughs> You know, my yeah, daughters, seemed, my daughters at university have just, well, my youngest is still there. She's got another year, but my eldest just graduated and I can't, they're the first kids in our family to go to university. I can't fathom for the life of me why you have to be at university for three or four years when you spend most of your time not at university whilst you're at university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a, that's an 18 month course. Yet they want to keep you there for three, sometimes four years. Do you think there's a bit of a scam yeah. there? Because you're not productive. I'm I'm not gonna go down the line of saying university's a scam because I've you know I think that gets uh, it gets peddled on the internet by some no 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 not who, university's a scam I'm not suggesting mean? I'm not suggesting university's a scam both my kids at uni it's how long you have to be at university for right, could okay. the course yeah. not be condensed and brought it. in 
and just go nine yeah. till five, four or five days a week in your classes, doing your study at the end of every semester, have 10 days or a week for doing all of your, you know, theses and all that kind of stuff and yeah. actually get that all executed in a more productive way and be out 18 months later. Yeah, I think you could, you like, you totally could. What I would say is what's the bit that you would lose by not having that. So I think the reason I think university is a really important thing. And I definitely, so I wrote a book called study ninja after productivity ninja. Mm, yeah, so, yeah. And it was, and my publishers had come up with the idea to do that. I had quite a few clients who loved productivity ninja and had kids and they were saying, Hey, we need a book for our kids. Um, but of course I was writing that book on the back of what I've just told you, right? Like, of, uh, well, I wasn't, I wasn't there, so I can't really tell you about how I was studying. Um, and I just sort of, um, squeezed through. And actually, if you look at like the first few pages of study ninja on about page seven or something, there's like actual screenshots from my school reports, which is like, Graham, chooses to get by on natural ability alone, but doesn't put in any effort whatsoever and all that, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I, and one of them was like, um, oh, he'll never, you know, he'll never um, amount to much in English or whatever, which is quite funny. I've written five books now. But um, yeah, like I think, um, you know, I had to, I really kind of um, rediscovered my love of learning when I was at university, which I then also talked about in Study Ninja as well. But I think alongside reco like recovering a love of learning, I think the thing about university is, it's about, you know, all the stuff that you do outside of the classroom and teaching yourself the teamwork skills and the life skills and, you know, sitting up till three in the morning and debating the meaning of life. And I just think some of those formative experiences are, they're so, A, they're so important. And B, I think it's really sad that we, we uh, put pressure on the university system to change and to become more about employability um and it's all become about employability now because well in the uk anyway because kids are paying for it so they want bang for their buck they want value for money but i think that's the wrong way of looking at it and i think actually we'd be better off getting back to a system where people like in germany and lots of other places got paid to go to university they took a bit longer at it and then when they come out not only are they way more employable but they're better critical thinkers um, you know, they're more creative, they're more able to actually be good citizens and live in the world. Um, and I think the more we try and create, let's do it all in a year or 18 months and make it cookie cutter and make it, you know, all about becoming an accountant at the end of it. It's like, I think it's, I think it's a real loss because, you know, I think there, it just feels to me like the formative years of sort of learning yourself. And I learned this actually recently from my partner, who's a trans psychologist. And she was saying that um, you, your brain doesn't stop uh, developing it, the bits of the brain that are around identity and self-awareness and knowing who you are until you're about 22, 23. So it's not, you know, we talk about 16 and 18 as these cutoff points of becoming adults, you know, mm. but actually up till 21, 22, 23, like no one knows who they are. So I think the more we can do to support people in those in uh, in those ages to fully understand themselves, like the better those people are going to be as humans for the rest of their lives. And, you know, we live in rich countries. We live in countries where there's the money to do that. Um, but we choose other things. Right. Mm. So, I yeah, like that. 
I, I, I get very annoyed when people start on, and I know you weren't going there, but when people get on this whole, like, university's a scam, man, like, start working when you're 15. It's like, well, for what? You know, I think it's it's really important that people also, like, get to know themselves and get to, you know, think about the world a bit and, and their yeah. place within the world before they get into being productive. And, you know, I'm, I know I'm the productivity ninja, but, like, I, there is more to to life than just doing and you know and you know it's fascinating you say that there's a guy that i know very successful guy in dubai said how do you see university said look university is not necessarily about the course you take or the job you get afterwards it's a lot about you demonstrating to yourself that there's still lots to learn and you're open to learning yeah and i thought that was really really important he said that but also he said the second thing that's important to remember he said one of the most one of the biggest long-term benefits of you being at university is the alumni and the network that you create. And if you understand that and you understand before you go to university that that value is going to be there, then you'll make the most of those relationships. And two examples of that are applying to me right now. One of my good friends, Siamak, he has a business partner called Fari here in Dubai, Siamak and Fari. They were Oxford together 50 years ago. You know, they and they're still friends and business people now, and they met at Oxford when they studied. But also, mm. then we talk about the negative effects of the alumni through COVID. My daughter graduated in July and hardly knew anybody. She was at yeah. uh, 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 what do you call it, UAL in London, and she's like, "Dad, we did most of the learning from home. We had the first three months. Then COVID came in. Then then everything was kind of distance learning because the universities didn't want to go back to people being in class." And so she's missed out on that opportunity to build those long-term relationships with many people, which um, which are one of the great values of universities. I feel so sad for that generation, you know, and I think that generation were also asked to sacrifice everything in their lives for their elders, weren't they? Like, you know, if you're 20, you're not dying of COVID really, um, generally, are you? So, yeah, I think that generation had it, had it really tough. The alumni thing's interesting. Um, so I think, it's definitely true in terms of the friends you make. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's definitely true if you went to Oxford. Um, but I've got a bunch <laughs> of friends. But no, but seriously, because I've got a bunch of friends who I've got on a WhatsApp group with. We all grew up in a little town in the Midlands called Rugby. So we've got this um, WhatsApp group that's called the Rugby Kids. I wonder if this is the first time the Rugby Kids WhatsApp group has been uh, on a, featured on a podcast. <laughs> but um, what's interesting, there's like two of our mates went to Oxford and one of them went to Oxford and also went to RADA. And he's an actor. And so RADA is, you know, obviously as prestigious as Oxford as, mm-hmm. uh, as you know, in, in those sort of circles. Um, and then most of the rest of us, you know, there's lots of really interesting people there. One of them's a, a curator of a, um, an art gallery that won a big um, art award in, in Derry uh, in Northern Ireland last year. Um, you know, um, actors, all kind, you know, doctors, all sorts of different jobs. And I can't remember how we got onto the topic. I think we were talking about, um, you know, who were the alumni of our old school, our old secondary school. And I put this question on the group and I said, um, can anyone tell me a, a sort of a moment in your life where you've been helped by the crest or badge of your university? Like that old, that sort of old school tie um, mm. thing. And of course, like the two people who went to Oxford both had stories. In fact, um, Anthony, the guy that also went to RADA, was like I have got more acting work through the people that I met at Oxford than I have from RADA right so like because the alumni network of Oxford is so powerful um, and Oxford and Cambridge I think have that 
but no one who wasn't at Oxford or Cambridge, um, which was the majority of us on the group, could ever come across a thing where they'd been given a job or they'd started a business or a direct link had come via that route into them being then sort of set up or successful. So I think the alumni thing is like, yeah, if you're at Oxford or Cambridge, definitely. Um, but I think the alumni in a slightly different way where it's just, you get to just, you know, I'm still in touch with some of the people that I went to university with and they're still just really good friends, you know? So I think you, you definitely widen your circle of even just like geographically knowing people from different parts of your country or whatever, and people internationally. And, you know, I remember, um, one of my best friends at, um, university was Jewish and I'd never met a Jewish person in my life before. And suddenly it was like, oh, wow, this is cool. Like, you know, and just getting to learn all of that, you know? And so I think there's, there's so many benefits like that, but yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's a bit of a myth that everybody's, um, shaking hands with funny handshakes and, and ties. <laughs> certainly if they are like, certainly if anyone's tried to give me a funny handshake before I've given the wrong handshake back and <laughs> <laughs> you missed out. So you didn't yeah, know the it. code. Had you yeah. know the code, you'd have, you'd have ended up being more productive. <laughs> I have emails that come in. Um, Sarah, my assistant looks at my emails and tells me the ones I should read, but she can't read my junk box and my junk box seems to get bigger and bigger. So I'm forever going into my junk box, opening up the email and clicking on the unsubscribe button. But no matter how many times I unsubscribe, they just keep coming and keep coming. And so I have to allocate maybe 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes once a week to go in and clearing out all of those junk, trashy mails that come through. Should I be bothered by that? Or should I just delete them as they come in rather than unsubscribing all the time? So if you don't think there's ever going to be a potential goldmine in one of those emails, I would say no. Um, there's some, think, yeah, but sometimes you get an email from somebody that you want and it's in the junk box and and it's gone into junk by accident yeah, yeah. so that's that's how i deal with junk is that um so i have a, probably a similar system to you um like my assistant does a first sift of the inbox and then i get the the rest of them um but the junk folder um it just feels like it's you're looking at it the other way around to how you look at your inbox. So when you go into the junk folder, your your like immediate assumption is all of this is not useful to me. And I'm just looking to cherry pick the one that I want out of it. Whereas when you're in your normal inbox, you're looking through it and you're going, all of this is probably useful to me. Everything is stuff I need to read. And I have to kind of go through that much more, method more methodically. So yeah, like I would say that, you know, a lot of, a lot of productivity is trying to work out what are the processes that I'm currently saying yes to that I could say no to and cut out. Um, and how can I um, stop trying to do efficiently the things that don't need to be done at all? So that for me would fit into that category, right? Where it's like, Ooh, how probably can get I away stop? With... Hold on. Let's say that again. How can you say, yeah, how can you me? stop doing efficiently the things that you don't actually need to do at all? So, a lot of people, because of the way our brains work, get really hooked into the satisfaction that they get from um, like completing a little task. But if it's a little task that doesn't actually drive you forward very much, then like you want to not even see that task because then you won't even have the temptation to try and do it. So, you know, I think um, one of the things I, I teach a lot um, in my workshops is the idea of um, renegotiating your to-do list so often what happens is people make a to-do list and then like you're saying before like the thing that you don't want to do is on the bottom and then there's something in the middle that you don't quite understand and 
there's 40 things on there and you, you know, you carry it forward day after day after day. And, um, often what's much more useful is to go back through that entire list and say, you know, what, show me the things on this list that two weeks ago I wrote down because I thought they were really important and actually the world's changed or life life's changed or the project's changed or whatever. What are the, what of, of these things can I delete? And what of these things can I go back to that person and say, Hey, I haven't done this. Do you actually still need it? Like, is there something different you need me to do now? And so I think just renegotiating is something that we don't do often enough. And, you know, like for me, it's like the hierarchy is like, no, is at the top renegotiating is next and then doing is is below that so you kind of have to always look at it as you know i I love i love the warren buffett quote which is the diff the difference between successful people and really successful people is that the really successful people say no to almost everything and so i think you know productivity is actually about what you don't do rather than what you do you've got to figure out what to say no to and what to renegotiate when we, when I always think about in my with my businesses, I'm like, is it a money making activity? I think that a lot. You know, is that activity yeah. going to make money? If it's not, then it's not a priority. Yeah, and so and that's about value, right? So I think um, being able to, I think, and this is you know back to your thing about not having a salary and having working on commission or having your own business. So having done both, I would say that definitely when you're um, you know, when you when you're your own boss, you almost get to a stage where, like, I almost like see colours in my head, where like the sort of the when I'm looking at my to do list is like the the things where I think are going to add a huge amount of value are a bit hotter in colour, mm-hmm. and then the bits that are just a bit more like soul sapping or a bit more useless are a bit colder in their colours. And to me, that's always about value. And it's like, if I think something's like really valuable, it's almost like the burning issue thing. Mm-hmm. Then I almost just learn to sort of screen that to sort of the top of my attention to pay more attention to. And I remember having this conversation with with someone in our business and saying, do you see the colors like that? And they were like, no. And so, and I think that's a, I think that's maybe something that is easier to see when you're like when it's yours or like you're more self-directed or the results are on you um, than it is when you're an employee. But like, also I think people just have that. I just have that a bit more naturally and some people have that a bit less naturally. Um, But yeah. So what I learned from that was that it's always very helpful when I say out loud something in, in a meeting or whatever that to me is quite obvious because I see it in those colors, but other people are like, there's 50 things to do. And like me just saying, okay, which is the thing that drives the most value, whether that's, you know, profit or whether that's something else. Um, people go, oh, of course. <laughs> you know? So like, it's, a, it's something I've sort of learned to actually um, voice out loud rather than just sort of take for granted in my own head. If that makes sense. Mm, does make sense. Okay, so a couple of questions here around, around uh, books that have influenced you along the way, but also, you know, You've gone on to write five books and you're writing book number six now, yeah? Yeah, this is book six, which is the the one called Kind, yeah. And I wrote a book and I hated every minute of it, as everybody (laughs) who's ever listened to any of my my content knows. It was the most horrible experience ever. You obviously enjoy it and you've talked about... No, not not always. (laughs) Oh, oh, okay, please, please be a brother of mine. (laughs) What was it like? Do you enjoy it or not? Um, some of them I've enjoyed more than others. Um, 
this last one I haven't enjoyed, and I'm just coming to the finish line of it, um, and I'm happy to talk about that. I think it's going to be my best book, but I haven't enjoyed writing it at all. <laughs> um, I found it really difficult because um, it's a, a completely new topic. So um, whereas the last couple of books, I did a book on meetings, um, I did a book on nutrition, but it was it was about nutrition, but it was I wrote it with a nutritionist and she did the nutrition parts and I was doing the habit part. So again, it was like, it felt really front and center. It's what I'm teaching every day and it just felt easy um, to write. Whereas this has just felt like I felt a lot of imposter syndrome. I've been mm. uh, in my head a lot thinking, who am I to be the one writing this book? Why is it me? Um, and I've also had like I think some books had just come out in the right shape and so you write the first yeah. draft and then it feels like okay it's the right shape I might block a bit off here and add a bit there and whatever but like the shape's right this book I mean chapters have moved from chapter three to chapter nine and like it's really it's been like a shifting mess for most of the process and I'm about a year behind the deadline uh yeah it's just it's been a really hard one it's actually been um, yeah, it's funny you say that, like there, you know, like you either love writing them or you don't. Um, I think this will be my last book. And I've said that to everybody close to me in my life. <laughs> I haven't said it to my publisher yet, but, um, I do. Yeah, I do think like I I'm kind of done with books for now in terms of, um, yeah, once this one comes out, I'm so proud of what's in there and, um, I really want to just, be spending the next few years of my life, like really take bringing that stuff to life in, in businesses and for people. And, you know, that's what I want to do. So why would I, what, when I've got all this, I'm sitting on all, all this stuff and I want to take it out in there in the world that doesn't happen by, by me squirreling myself away and writing another book book. And as someone who is quite introverted, that's also my easy way out. So I've probably written three more books than I needed to it, like financially. So I would have been better off, because books don't pay very well, I'm guessing you'd concur. Like you have lots of other revenue streams that are much um, oh, they, they, uh, more they, lucrative. They say, they, books, say that, right? they, they say if you're an author, you're an authority. That's why I wrote a book. You've written five yeah. and six. Six is done. So six books, that means you're a, a, a legitimate expert and everybody should listen to what you've got to say around this particular subject or around the subjects of the books uh, talk about anyway. Yeah. So but I think you, there is, is there it, is some it, value to be said of like whoever's writing a book, um, and this happens to me quite a lot. I, I get asked quite a lot to um, like write the blurb for somebody else's book. You know, when they have all the different people on the, the back forward. saying, yeah, "Hey, yeah, we yeah. should read oh, this yeah. book." Not the forward, but just the little oh. blurbs on the back. Um, I'm not that important to get the forward, <laughs> but, um, but I sometimes get asked to do blurbs. And when I do blurbs, I always make a real point when I send the email back to the author of saying congratulations on writing a book. I know how hard that is. And I know how much you've sacrificed to make this happen. So like, just well done, because I think often um, it, it is a really painful process. And I think coming back to your, your point about authority, I think even with books where I don't necessarily agree with what the author has written, there's there can be no doubting that that person has spent a lot of hours sat in a room working out what the hell they think about this. And I think it's, I think that is valuable in itself. Mm. So even though books I think have been 
maybe a bit devalued in the last few years. Um, you know, it's way easier to write one. Lots more people do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, publishers aren't the only game in town. There's lots of ways where I think books have been devalued. But I think just the process of writing a book to work out what you think about something and to crystallize that in the best way, like it is, it's painful, but it's also like it does make you an authority because I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you've just had to spend you you've put the hours in you know yeah absolutely yeah i would agree okay right some tips to be more productive we want to talk about that and we're talking about money yeah. as well so let's talk about that. oh yeah okay cool <laughs> do you want me to just what? give you like four or five things that people can do because i feel like yes. if you've been listening this long and i've not told you what to do yet i should probably you hate me <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so uh i would say one of the biggest problems people have with productivity is uh, that they uh, they don't know what's in their own heads and what's in their own heads is blocking them and stopping them from being productive. So one of the easiest, quickest wins you can do um, is just get everything that's in your head down onto paper and use paper first. I think physical um, pen to paper is, you know, it, like for me, it's a more sort of satisfying thing for the brain. Um, and then once you've got it all down, you need two things for every single um, thing that you has showed up on that list. Um, you need to know two things. One is, and be very specific about this, what is the desired project outcome? What's the thing that you want at the end when this is done? How do you know that you've got to the end? Um, and being as measurable as possible with that um, is really helpful. So instead of writing down conference done, um, write down organize a conference where 100 people attend, it makes this much in revenue and builds authority in this way like be really specific about what's the desired project outcome and then you need the next physical action so what's the next when i look down and i'm a fly on the wall in my own office and i look down from the corner of the room what does it look like when i'm starting so that doesn't look like um a really vague phrase like follow up or get on with or start or whatever it looks like google these search terms and find out what the pricing is for this or it looks like read this book and work out the three things that i'm going to put on a podcast or it looks like go and talk to the other guy in my office who's done this before and get his advice before i start like whatever that thing is what's the physicality of it so next physical action is about saying once you have something physical then actually what happens is your brain actually starts working on it um, so it's really important to um, flip the way we think about all this stuff and do the thinking first. Most of the time, what people do is they write down on a to-do list. Um, and, and I do think there's a real use for to-do list, by the way. I know um, I would disagree with Neil IL when it comes to that. But like, I think getting everything down um, onto paper, what most people do is they write down really vague things on there. So it'll just be like podcast episode. Right. And then it's like, uh, so as you know, there's like a hundred things when you do a podcast episode or it's like write book (laughs) or or, or it's like a home thing. Like it's, um, you know, spare room or whatever, you know, everyone's got that room in the house that they want to clear out and do something weird or whatever. So they write down spare room, but actually it's like, well, there's no room in the spare room right now. So what we need first is boxes to be able to sort stuff out. So actually the action on there should have been, order the boxes or the action on there should have been, you know, talk to my partner about when in the diary, we're going to spend a morning doing it. So it's like finding the thing that gets momentum 
um, is really big. And then finding what does it look like when it's done? So in the spare room, it looks like being able to fit the new bed in there or whatever. And so I think the often I think how I describe that to people is like the art of specificity, right? So when you get really specific first, then every time you come to your to-do list, even if it's like Thursday and you've already worked 10 hours and you're really tired, you get to Thursday and all of those things are so clear and so specific that you just know where to start. Whereas you don't have that thing where you look at it and you go, I'm tired and my list still has loads of thinking left to do in it. So thinking up front and getting it all out of your head so that you can do that, I think is a really, really um, important thing. Um, and then I think it comes down to, in terms of the choices we make about that list, um, I would say, don't try and manage time, try and manage attention. And what I mean by that is you have certain hours in your day where you are more switched on, engaged, where you're more likely to find flow, where you're more likely to have the brain power to tackle the most difficult stuff on your list. Mm -hmm. And you also have hours in the day where what you need in that time, because you're already really tired, is the easiest stuff to do. So if you start, um, so I actually have two, basically I have two to-do lists, right? I have a to-do list, which is like, here's what I'm going to do in my office, mm -hmm. um, which is just called office. And then the other one is called office mindless. And it's basically when I'm really tired, like after I've done something like this, where I've been really switched on the next hour, I get the little kind of adrenaline dump or the lull or whatever. And like, that's what I'll go to then is like the mindless list and do it then. So if you start managing your levels of attention and being, you know, really self-aware around when that is in your week, um, then uh, that like really is a superpower. And I think basically, as long as you're doing something useful in the hours where you have that, what I call proactive attention. So three to four hours in your day will be the hours where you can really do the most difficult stuff. As long as you're using those hours well and not wasting them, it doesn't matter what you do in the rest of the time. Um, cause you'll get so you'll, you'll be getting so much done off the back of that. So for example, if you're a morning person, block out the mornings, don't spend it in someone else's boring meeting. Don't look at email. If you're an evening person, you know, that's the time to really defend. Um, and it's also about just being mindful about what else has your attention in that time. Um, you know, phones are a big distraction. So, you know, I have a little blocker on my phone. Um, my time for writing and everything else is mornings. So it's like, I can't look at Instagram during those times. I can't look at Twitter. I can't, you know, all those things are blocked. Um, the app that I use is called Freedom to make that happen. Um, but yeah, like I, I think just managing attention rather than time. And then there's like a whole bunch of other stuff, um, you know, that I think is really useful. But like, that's like the fundamental framework for me is like, get it out of your head, be really crystal clear, um, and then just make sure you're engaged with, um, what's on your plate, you know, looking at those lists regularly enough to make them feel fresh. And, and so it still feels like everything's out of your head and there's not other stuff in there. Mm -hmm. mm, that makes sense. Okay. Let's talk about money. Lastly, <laughs> let's do it. So, so uh, my background is wealth management. I've been in that industry for many, ah, many years. Okay. So, so I'm a, an investor. I invest a lot in private equity and other startups and various businesses. So I understand money. I understand that the reason I got passionate about money in the early mm. years when I was 23 is that I was taught really well to understand that most people, if they've got a chance, are going to mess up their finances and going to end up broke when they're 65. Yeah. And yeah. So I got on a bit of a mission trying to stop people messing up their money, basically, and protecting their families. And so it really got in my head. I was very driven by that. Anytime I saw somebody um, 
that was doing something stupid. It used to drive me mad. I used to sit and look at them. Mm. And think, are you nuts or what? So tell me what your learnings are. Yeah, so I have a couple of um, friends, uh, one called Charles Davies and another one called Tom Nixon, and they're both students of a guy called Peter Koenig. I don't know if you've come across Peter Koenig. Mm -hmm. Do you know his work? Mm -hmm. So um, he has this thing called Money Work, Mm -hmm. and um they're just people both of those people are people who ask really good questions both of them have a kind of buddhist influence to their uh thinking as well um but essentially uh, one of the things that they both talk about from peter koenig i think is a really powerful thing um it's the idea that the and we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier the stories that you first um associate with money are then the stories that you perpetuate through your life um, so Peter Koenig says, um, money is nothing. Money is neutral. Um, you know, if you think money is power, that's because you've put that story onto it. If you think uh-huh. money is security, that's because you've put that story onto it. If you think money is freedom, you've put, if you think money is glamour, like you're the one projecting. So money is neutral. And then it's the stories that makes money become the thing that it is for you. Um, and I find this really fascinating. And I often ask people, just like if I'm at a party or whatever, um, I'll ask them, uh, what is your earliest memory of money? Mine is that story that I just told you earlier about my mum and the, and also the other story I have is um, uh, watching in about 1986, 85, 86, the Ethiopian famine on TV. Yes. One of my, yeah, well, just before live where they were reporting it. And then one of my teachers at school, was um like raising money for save the children and i was just like fuck i can help cool so i was like really young at the time you know i was seven or whatever and um, i started like selling stuff and like i did like a sponsored run and the only people sponsoring me were my parents and you know just all that but like just really wanting to do something so those are like my two like really like earliest memories about our money's being useful in this way whatever um but it's really interesting how someone's first story about that influences their entire life's attitude to money. So one of my friends, um, she actually comes from quite a wealthy background. She uh, was walking down the street one day with her mum when she was about six or seven and she saw a homeless guy by the side of the road. And she started asking her mum a lot of questions and saying, how come this guy doesn't have a house like what's why what's going on and her mum started saying well some people don't have money and you know and she started saying to her mum well that's not fair you know and do you know what she does for her job now she is um she works for an organization that lobbies um into like africa and asia and stuff for fair taxation and anti-corruption mm. and so like it was so interesting where like she told this story and it's like Oh, yeah, this stuff's really deep in the way we think. And um, yeah, so many people have similar versions of that where like, you know, if they grew up in um, sort of generational wealth, they've had money you know, that they've inherited or that's been passed down to them, like their whole mindset becomes about the security of that, right? And, and, and their whole way of seeing money is about multi-generational rather than their own needs there. And so I just think there's something really fascinating about um that conversation and i suppose also the other thing about money is like is it not one of about two taboos left right like it's like it's a thing that you're just not really like certainly in the uk 
like you're just sort of not allowed to talk about it really and so no one really talks about and shares what their salary is or like anything and it just feels it feels really odd to me that um we're all so hung up on it whereas actually when you start to i think when you start to share those things um and explore it and get more curious about it rather than just kind of pushing it to one side like everybody gets more savvy and more in tune with you know um their own feelings on it or what they need to do differently so yeah i just think it's like it's just really it's really fascinating when you get on to talking to people about money because a lot of people don't want to so it's actually quite a rare conversation but the interesting thing about it is is that like that there is a certain amount of money in the world or there's been money printed over the last few years. So that's a bit different, but cryptocurrency is an example. There's a certain amount of Bitcoin in the world. It will end up in the hands of the people that understand it best and have the right mindset around it. And I think it's always, you know, Norman Vincent Peale's the power of positive thinking. It's just like, yeah, it, it mm. always starts, whether it's productivity, whether it's managing money, it always starts with the stories, doesn't it? What is the story that we're telling ourselves and yeah. what story can we learn that we can then re-educate ourselves to use that can help influence us to make the right types of decisions to be more effective with this this yeah. money yeah. as an example and we i think the taboo isn't money i think the taboo is kind of surrendering to learning about the things that you need essentially to relearn because you're setting your yeah. way for the belief God. system yeah, yeah absolutely so um Charles Davis, um, one of those two friends of mine that I mentioned, who's a teacher on this stuff, he he did this really interesting thing with me where in the middle of a conversation about it, he said, you know, for example, what I do sometimes is I um, uh, just get people to open up their wallet and um, just take all the money out and just and put it in my hands and just see how that feels. Are you up for doing that? And I said, oh, yeah, like, let's, let's do that. Let's play around. So um, he... I got all the money that was in my wallet. It was about a hundred quid or something and um, all the notes. And I put it in his hand and he said, cool. Yeah. How does that feel? And he just put it in his pocket, you know? And I was like, Oh, feels a bit weird now. Like you've just taken my money. And he's like, yep, I have. And I was like, Oh, right. Okay. And like, my, I could feel like the hackles go up in me like, Oh, lack of security, like all these things. And of course, like in the end, like, after about 10 minutes of watching me absolutely squirm about it, he was, you know, he gave me um, the money back. But then he said to me at the end, he said, um, the thing that you need to know about this is that you are like programmed and biased by your money story. And that's like the Peter Coney kind of, you know, um, sort of theory on it. And he goes, um, that's okay. Like you're, it's okay that you're programmed to bias, but just know it will affect every decision that you make ever. Um, so then it's up to you. Like when you're ready to, <laughs> when you're ready to undo that, you can do that. Like you can, you can reprogram that. Yeah. Um, and then it doesn't mean that you won't have a bias, but it means that you might have a different set of ways to think about it, or you might have multiple biases or whatever, but like, you know, you can change it, but just, and it's also fine that it's there. Like you, it, you don't have to look at it as being, um you know a, a deficit but you do have to know that it's there and then once you know that it's there so now that i know that it's there i can't say that it's like not an issue for me or that i don't get worried about money or like like you know it's not like hey you know everything's uh like there's no anxiety but i would say that my awareness of it is so much better now than it 
was you know even even a few years ago before I was having those conversations and um and that does yeah that does really sort of impact the way you think about it but back to your thing about like there's a finite amount in the world and it like I think money generally will flow to the people who are ready to receive it and money will flow to people who have the best education I think that's true but even that idea that there's a finite amount of money in the world like yeah they just print more like there's so even even the value of money is like it's a collective story isn't it the value of bitcoin is a collective story the value of fiat currency is a collective story like all of it's just a story isn't it you know it's a story not a store a story not a store (laughs) (laughs) i love that point we'll finish there graham thanks for coming to join us on the show it's been such a pleasure Spence. i just want to say thank you and um like yeah this has been a very different um kind of conversation to to many of the ones i have on podcast and I've, i've really loved it so yeah just want to say thank you so much yeah 